Hello, this is Curtis Edwards, Vice President of Investor Relations at Hudson Investing. Are you ready to start building your multifamily portfolio? Kent and I are excited to announce our newest deal in Spartanburg, South Carolina. This 157-unit property offers a unique chance to acquire a B-class value-add property for just $120,000 per door. This is well below replacement costs. De-risking the deal even further is a favorable loan assumption with over six years remaining at 3.73% fixed. With 50 economic development projects underway and 70,000 jobs within a 20-minute drive, the South Carolina upstate region is primed for above-average job, population, and rent growth. Don't miss out on this exclusive deal. Find the link in the description notes to learn how you can invest. So we closed on that first deal, which was 16 units. Uh, we closed on our second deal in February, which is 24 units. That's also when I hired our first two employees. They were part-time at that time. Uh, and then since then, we've closed our third, fourth, and fifth deal. So we're up to 72 existing units. And then we've got our first uh, development deal. Welcome to Right Around Real Estate, the show about how to passively invest like a pro. On each episode, I interview real estate experts who give their top investing advice, strategies, and tools, and I break down their insights into practical steps to avoid the pitfalls and make better investments. I want to help you passively invest like a pro. This is Ritter on Real Estate, and I'm your host, Kent Ritter. Hello, fellow investors. Welcome to another episode of Ritter on Real Estate, where we teach you how to passively invest like a pro. Today, my guest is Chris Grinzig, and he's the founder of JAG Communities and JAG Capital Partners, which is a vertically integrated, multifamily-focused investment firm based in Jacksonville, Florida. And Chris, thanks so much for being here today. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Yeah, so you know we're going to dig into a lot of stuff today, but before we do that, let's, let's tell folks a little bit more about who you are and your background. So please uh, share with us where you come from. Yeah, for sure. So Long Island, New York, uh, born and raised there for basically 28, 29 years of my life, and then moved down to Jacksonville about 16 months ago, roughly. So November, 2020, um, but went to college up there. And then after that, just kind of bounced around between jobs, uh, coaching some college soccer, doing some odd jobs here and there, but then was trying to get into, you know, your stereotypical business world. And my entry into that was being a cold caller for a stock brokerage company up there. Did that for a few months, uh, studied for the, the tests, got my licenses for the Series 7 and 63. And kind of as I got licensed, I got really exposed to more of the business. And that's when I realized I very much did not like that business or how it operated because uh, it was very much based on how much commission could I make when I raise money from people and put them in the stocks. And they didn't really care whether people made money or lost money. So that didn't really sit right with me. And I was looking for, you know, the next thing to do and how to transition out. And it just so happened, my mom, my cousin bought a flipping course. Uh, they invited me along to like the weekend immersion seminar, uh, went to that thing, decided we were going to flip houses on nights and weekends, uh, and completely failed at that for like the next six or seven months. Uh, we decided to try and pivot to something else. So we explored out of state investing, uh, tax deeds. And then that's when I got introduced to John Cohen, 
who's one of the co-owners at Toro, where I worked prior to starting my own thing. Met John, did a couple of deals on the side, roughly 100 units in Kentucky and Jacksonville, Florida, which is how we got introduced to down here. And then I left my job as a stockbroker where I was still working, moved over to Toro, which John had formed with his partner, Don, where they were focused on much larger assets. So 100 to 500 units, five to $50 million, and kind of got coached up and brought up through you know their expertise, their experience, their knowledge, et cetera. And I was there for roughly four and a half years, a little bit less. Um, and while I was there, it evolved from you know learning to kind of handling the asset management to then running and growing the portfolio in Florida. Because we had done that one deal in Jacksonville, Florida. I was doing a lot of work on that on the side. And I got in and said, hey, like, this deal's going well. We've got a good team down there. Why don't we look for more? And they said, sure. So while I was there, we bought uh, 4,000 units in total worth around 300 million at acquisition. We grew our portfolio in Jacksonville to 1,000 units worth around 70 million acquisition. And then uh, in 2020, when COVID hit, myself and a couple family members decided to start looking just for a deal for ourselves. So no investors, no whatever, wasn't really planning on leaving. Uh, found a great deal down here in Jacksonville around the corner from a deal we had just bought at Toro. And it was like same vintage, same floor plans, same basic business plan, which made it really nice for me. Cause I'd just done, you know, months and months of work on this asset and the submarket, and had gotten a few months of operations to kind of see how it was going. And as I kind of put it under contract, put it out to my network that, you know, I was buying a property, had a few dozen people reach out to me and be like, Hey, that's amazing. Are you leaving? Like, what does this mean? What are you doing? And I was like, no, not really planning on leaving. Uh, however, so many people asked me, I actually started thinking about and contemplating it. And one thing to keep in mind too, was I had been living in Brooklyn, New York, uh, while I was working for Toro. And when COVID hit, I moved out East to my mom's place, which is very nice, but it was a 55 and older community. I was living in the basement just to be like separated and I'd been going stir crazy for like five or six months. And so decided that I was going to leave, but I was going to leave and move from New York to Florida to open up a vertically integrated shop doing property management. And one day to also have some construction in-house, but for now, just you know, managing the construction and decided I was just going to pack up everything I could fit in my car, drive down when we closed and just set up shop and figure it out. So we closed on that first deal, which was 16 units. Uh, we closed on our second deal in February, which was 24 units. That's also when I hired our first two employees. They were part-time at that time. Uh, and then since then, we've closed our third, fourth, and fifth deal. So we're up to 72 existing units. And then we've got our first uh, development deal uh, under contract for the land. And we're going through the zoning and stuff like that. And I was a couple minutes late hopping on here because I was on that call uh, before I hopped on this. So, uh, you know, we're multifamily focused, like you said, Jacksonville focused and our, you know, my 10 year vision for the company is a scale to 500 million under management in 10 years. Gotcha. Well, that's a, that's an excellent story and a lot to unpack there. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, just starting from the beginning, you know, you, you started out with flips, right. And mm -hmm. you tried a, a whole handful of different things, which I think a lot of 
real estate investors do. I mean, I, I did the same thing myself, but what was it ultimately about multifamily that made you land there? Uh, it was two part. One, we were floundering to find our feet in real estate. So having somebody that was willing to kind of mentor us and work with us a little bit was part of it. Uh, and then two, it was a pretty heavy value add the first deal that we did. Uh, we were basically ripping out all the cosmetic stuff and putting in new. So it was a toned down flip, but we were doing eight at the same time. And then, oh, you're going to hold it and get, you know, some of those tax benefits of depreciation and cash flow and, you know, more, you know, forced appreciation rather than just hoping something appreciates. I mean, you could do that a little bit with a flip, but be that as it may, it was just a couple different factors that we were like, okay, this is really interesting. As we started doing it more and more, uh, it seemed to make more sense. So it was just kind of got our foot in, really liked it. And then, you know, the, the business has continued and I continue to really like it because, you know, just everybody's always going to need some sort of housing. So from a, a risk perspective, it's a pretty nice type of business to be buying versus a lot of other ones, you know, because at the end of the day, that's what multifamily is. It's a, a business you're buying that's heavily tied to the underlying real estate. And from a risk reward perspective, I just think it's really nice. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of people, a lot of listeners will agree with you. That's why, that's why we're on here, right? Because we all kind of fell into, into the same spot and, and all have very similar paths. And so, I mean, you called out one scalability to the ability to force appreciation, which, which I think is huge. And if people don't really understand the power of that, I think that's one of the main benefits versus having to rely on, on the market. And then lastly, the, the tax benefits of mm-hmm. not just flipping and selling, but holding it for a longer term, right? Not only yeah. not having ordinary income and, and turning that into to capital gains, especially long-term gains, but that's appreciation that you can you can share and offset a lot of that too. So I think a lot of the things that, that we hear, um, reasons to invest in multifamily are exactly what, what put you there. So yeah, hundred percent. Right on. So, so tell us now, so you moved from New York, you moved down to Jacksonville, um, you know, you went through Toro, tell us now, what does your investment thesis look like? Obviously you're, you're heavy into Florida, um, mm-hmm. kind of all in being there, but what does the, the thesis look like now? What's your focus? Yeah, I'm pretty macro, high level, kind of like gut feeling on things. So like you said, it's kind of tough to miss right now when you're in Florida. You know, if you took a dart and threw it at the state of Florida, I feel like you'd land in a place that people are moving to and you would bet that assets are going to continue to appreciate just because the supply and demand ratio is way off. You know, there's not nearly enough supply for how many people are moving here, let alone, you know, just in general. Um, so it's really great from that standpoint. Uh, two, like I said, you know, if you compare it to buying any types of business, I mean, we spend next to no money on marketing for our customers, which is our tenants. Um, it's really tough to find a business where your marketing is probably not one of your top line items. And for us, you know, we have a massive base of customers that need the product we're selling that's a pretty nice environment to be in. Not even, you know, that's not Florida specific, but just in general, but it goes into that supply and demand, right? Because there's not as much supply as there's demand, it continues to keep our marketing costs incredibly low if next to nothing. Uh, And then two, you know, kind of the overarching thesis for us is more of a a long-term horizon. So we're trying to find deals that are 
poorly operated, under-rented, or have some sort of other opportunity that we think we can come in and do better or, you know, increase the NOI somehow one way or another. And what our plan is, you know, if you buy something at a, a five cap, right, you're basically saying, if I buy this deal all cash, I'm going to make 5% every year. When you do a value add or something opportunistic, your your yield on your total cost goes from that, you know, five to a six or a six and a half. So you've now created an asset that outperforms what the market is. A lot of people then turn around and sell that because they've forced a ton of value, which is fine. But for me and what I would like for our company to be and along with our investors is to find and generate assets that can continue to outperform the market by increasing the value, doing some sort of capital event. So a refinance or you know, a second position loan, pull out a bunch of money and then continue to enjoy the fruits of the labor that we put in for the past 12, 18, 24 months by you know, renovating, increasing operations, forcing value and you know, increasing you know, the yield we get on the deals we buy. Gotcha, so it's more of a long-term strategy. Long-term. Yeah. So all of our deals are, you know, five, 10 years focused, um, just kind of depending upon, you know, the deal and the investors and the makeup and things of that nature. Sure. Sure. No, that makes a ton of sense. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, like you said, Florida is growing. You're able to take advantage of that supply and demand imbalance. And like you said, finding value add properties that have a deficiency, right? Something you can solve. I mean, really similar strategies to what we're implementing up in the Midwest. And like, yeah, like you said, I think there's a lot of room to run there. A lot of room to run. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, uh, coming from a larger firm, well-established firm, uh, now being out on your own, what are some of the differences that you've experienced in, in operating and buying properties, you know, working for somebody within a, a big established name versus now being out on your own? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, even though my position at Toro, I encompassed a lot of different roles and wore a lot of different hats. There's still so much more that goes into it from the standpoint of just like, even just bullshit administrative work, like mail coming in and getting this person, this thing and, dealing with legal and tax paperwork. Uh, that's a lot of stuff I never had to deal with in the past and quite frankly sucks and is very annoying. And I'll be very happy when I no longer have to deal with that, you know, cause we'll have, you know, staff or another company kind of dealing with a lot of that stuff. Um, but there's a lot of other ancillary little things that have to get done that, you know, just eats up a lot of time, whether it's, you know, just the amount of time it takes, but even just switching between tasks always takes a little bit of time that people don't, you know, so if answering a piece of mail or scanning something in takes a minute, well, from you to go from one task to another may also actually take you, you know, another 20, 30 seconds. And you do that several times a day, you know, multiple days a week, you know, all that time adds up. So it really takes away from a lot of the productiveness that I feel like I can do in a day and a week that I felt like I was able to do a lot more while I was at Toro. Uh, also, they had you know, more established systems already in place. They had more team members in place. So things that I took for granted that were already established and set up, I'm now having to spend time and allocate resources to setting those things up so that going forward, it's already in place. Um, so it's really just kind of you know the path of getting things set up to kind of build that foundation to go off of. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I can attest to that too. I mean, we come from somewhat similar backgrounds of, of working for a larger firm and then been going on your own. And, um, you know, and I, I had done smaller stuff on my own before, but I think, yeah, the, the amount of like just little things that, that you realize. And then I've read, I don't know if you've read the, the book Deep Work, but one of the things that they talk about in that is actually the, it takes your brain like seven minutes to process switching from one task to another to get like fully into that task. And so you start to even add that stuff up and it really does start to eat your time away. And it was amazing. Like when I started too, how I experienced the same thing. It's like, man, you allocate X amount of time to get something done and realize everything takes longer than, than you expect. And by the time you switch over and get your mind back in and get all set up and it really starts to, to eat away at your, your productivity. And so, yeah, that was one of the first things I was able to do is like bring some assistance on and start to offload some of that. And that was, that was huge. So um, yeah, I, I agree. Like you, you don't, and you don't think about all that little stuff um, and just all the, all the scanning and, and paperwork shuffling and back and forth illegal and all those things are something that, that yeah, you just, it's difficult to account for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And a lot of times too, it's, or at least this might be more of a personal struggle. Um, but sometimes putting things off for a couple of days and be like, okay, I'll deal, you know, if, if those five things that, you know, people say need to get done, putting them off until, you know, Monday of next week, or, you know, a couple of days from now, and then being able to sit down and kind of chunk those things out and get them done. A lot of times I struggle with just like putting that off or leaving it off for another day. Mm-hmm. Whereas I'm like, okay, if this comes in, I need to get this done now type of thing. Um, yeah. And that's where a lot of the times I bounce back and forth. And I haven't read that book specifically, but I've talked to people who have, and it's just kind of a theme and understanding yeah. I've picked up and just also self-realize that going from one thing to another is not efficient. Um, yeah. And that's oftentimes a lot of trouble when you've got a lot of different people vying for your attention. And this business in and of itself is just being kind of a middleman for a lot of different things. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I just say like, you know, basically my whole day is just figuring shit out. Like, okay, this person needs this. How do I get that? Where do I get it? Who do I talk to, to get that thing for that person? And it's like, yes, over time, you know, some of the same things pop up over and over again, but then it's like, you know, things are always constantly changing. Like we're going through a refinance right now. And it's like, you know, I've done loans for Toro, you know, several, if not dozens, I've done four loans for these ones, but this is a new lender who I haven't worked with. So it's got things I haven't done before. So it's like, okay, now I've got to spend time figuring it out when I thought I already had it figured out to a certain degree. So it's just like, even once you think you have something figured out, that process may change going forward. So it's like a, a fluid thing too, that's always changing. So you know, it's definitely challenging from that degree as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's just, it's like being an entrepreneur and it's just time management is one of the most difficult things that that we all deal with, right? How do you allocate time appropriately? How do you chunk things? How do you, how do you, how do you make it all work? So yeah, I think that's, uh, no, I I think that's right. I think I'm sure that resonates uh, with a lot of people. How about when you're approaching when you're approaching brokers uh, to go after deals, I mean, do you find the response is different now that, that you're a one man show? Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the brokers I talked to a lot changed because the people I was talking to was, you know, 150, 200, 300 sure. unit properties. They're not working on the smaller deals that I am. And I should have also included this in the thesis. 
I'm focused on like 20 to 80 unit properties just because I feel yeah. there's still a lot more mom and pop deals out there, less mm-hmm. um, sophisticated or, you know, they don't spend the time to stay up on the market. Like, you know, the couple deals we've bought, I mean, the rents organically without a lot of the units need work because they are so old. But if you were to just turn them, you know, they're, you know, 200, $250, $300 below the market rent, you know, so you're organically getting a 20 to 30% increase on revenue. You know, those are not opportunities you're really finding in, you know, the more quasi institutional space of, you know, 150 units plus. So, you know, that's another part of it. Um, And I think, that subset of people I talked to on a weekly basis for deal sourcing uh, changed a lot. So it was almost doing a lot of the work I had done previously at Toro. I had to somewhat redo and, you know, talk to a new group of individuals, um, which isn't necessarily a bad thing because I can bring in that, you know, sophistication from a higher level down to, I don't want to say a lower level, but you know, a different level or, you know, you know, the competition is different of other buyers. Um, And there's other people like me for sure. I'm not, you know, just the only one doing it. So Um, how do you, yeah. How do you engage with, with a new set of brokers, right? How do you create that? uh, How do you create that relationship? I mean, how'd you go about that? Yeah. So it's funny because that's how the first deal actually got done was it was through a broker that used to work for Walker and Dunlop, which they had sold us a couple of deals at Toro. And one of their brokers had gone off on their own. And I was talking to somebody else and they're like, hey, you should talk to George Bacon, which is, is the broker's name. I was like, why? He's whatever. He's like, no, no, he went off on his own. I just didn't hear about it. I didn't realize that like, you know, when you get the blast email, there's like the team of people on the bottom. That's like, you know, one, two, you know, broker one, two, three, and four, right? Because they're all a team. And I didn't realize he hadn't been on him for a while. So I reached back out to him and he was never my main contact, but we kind of knew each other's name. And I was like, Hey, so-and-so told me to call you. Like he said, you went off on your own and you're doing some things and here's what I'm looking for. And here's what I'm doing and all this stuff. And we probably talked for like, you know, 40, 50 minutes in general, just like, you know, Hey, what are you doing? And here's what I'm doing. And, you know, COVID was going on at that time too. So it was just talking about the market in general. And then, you know, we were talking about deals that had happened in the market. And it was just that type of thing where, you know, he kind of like towards the end was like, okay, like we've never really talked that much because I wasn't your main contact, but clearly, you know, what you're talking about and what's going on. And the first deal we bought came out of, he said, Hey, by the way, um, it just kind of hit me. There was a deal I was going to list. And then COVID hit and we kind of pulled it back. He said, it's 16 units. It's right around from the deal that you know, my old company, I just sold you guys. I actually think it would be perfect. You know, do you want me to reach out? And I was like, yeah, that sounds amazing. Like, you know, looked at the location, looked at the deals, like, this is like perfect. You know, it's kind of like a dream come true type of thing. I was like, yeah, let me know. And reached back out. The guy said he would sell, you know, I had a, a contact of mine because I was still up in New York and stuff was crazy at that time. You know, this was like, I want to say like June or July of 2020. So New York was still very much shut down and flights were being weird and things of that nature. I was like, Hey, can you just go, go tour this for me? And what do you think? Uh, and then within a few days we had an offer in and, you know, we had a contract and then we closed. So, uh, that conversation that, you know, reintroduction to a certain degree slash introduction, cause we hadn't spoken that much, you know, 
led to a deal at the end of the conversation. That's awesome. And I think it's funny, maybe not funny, but how often that happens is it's those, those kind of organic conversations with brokers that all of a sudden it's, oh, actually, yeah, we've got this deal. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I mean, it, it's happened to me several times, you know, and we've, we've closed a couple of deals because of that, because it's just like just engaging with the brokers and keeping that conversation going for you is like, a, it was a, maybe a new conversation, but I think that's just the importance of maintaining those broker relationships mm-hmm. for the listeners understanding, you know, every two to three weeks, I'm trying my best to reach out to the brokers that, that I know and just have those, those conversations. They're not always 40 minutes. They're, they're maybe a couple minutes, but mm-hmm. Oftentimes it can spark just, oh yeah, by the way, we had this, this deal that's about to come out or this one we're, we're thinking about. I think that's critical to maintain those relationships. Yeah. I think one thing that at least I'm a little bit guilty of, but I would imagine this is a lot of people is, you know, to our own faults, we're so into our own world. We tend to think that a lot of other people know more than what they actually do about what's going on in our life and what we're doing. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's like, you're, you're not top of mind for most people, if not almost everybody. Right. So the more you can just ping that person and like, they just see your name, right. It's just a text. Yep. It's just an email. Yeah. It's a five minute phone call. You do start to become more top of mind in what they're doing rather than like, Oh, I haven't spoken to this person in four months. And then I get a, a blast email and I'm buying a fully marketed deal that may or may not be worth it. And I think that's the thing that, you know, I don't, I don't know if people do enough or in a, in a manner that makes sense because we think, Oh, you know, I spoke to him like four weeks ago. He'll think of me if he sees something. It's like, no, you've got to stay on that person's mind consistently because, you know, that's how deals get done. And that's how people think of things. And it's like, even today I was having a conversation with, I have a, a partner for the development deal we're going to be doing. Cause I have no development experience. So I got introduced to him and, you know, I brought him in on the, on the GP side to kind of help with a lot of those things. And we talk probably like once a week, every other week or touch base just on what's going on and looking at new development opportunities. Cause I'm still very much learning about a lot of these things. And I had a conversation yesterday with uh, somebody about like, um, you know, they're just a fun looking to invest in, in different things. And it was an interesting opportunity. And I didn't even think of him until I was on the phone with him before we jumped on. And it wasn't until the end of the call that I thought to even connect those two people in my mind and being like, Hey, this might actually be something you would be interested in too, because it could be a good fit for what you're looking for. Mm-hmm. And it's like one of the, it's like, this is somebody I've been talking to at least every other week for months on end whether it's text, it's probably every week if you combine text, emails, and phone calls. Yeah. And it's like, I still didn't think of it until I jumped on the phone with them again. So sometimes it's just like talking to somebody for a decent amount of time and something you say triggers something that they're thinking of or they've thought of recently to connect the dots. So yeah, staying on top of those people is really important. And it's one of the reasons I really like that 20 to 80 unit space, at least here in Jacksonville, it may not be for everybody. It's incredibly disjointed. You know, there for the hundred plus unit stuff, there's like five companies, you know, call it 10 guys or girls that source deals. You know, they 95% of the deals in Jacksonville go through them mm-hmm. in the sub 100, sub 80 unit space. If I'm looking at 15 deals, there's probably 10 to 12 different points of contact for each of those deals 
that I'm looking at. And yes, yeah. some of those are development, some of those are existing. So that's a different subset of agents or brokers, but even still for existing stuff, it's at least half, you know, it's not like, you know, the same five people all the time, which I love because I will do the work and spend the time to continue to stay up on those people and, and be top of mind. And by having a pretty strict and rigid criteria, it makes it easier to stay top of mind when they see a deal and they're thinking of who would buy this. Um, but it, it also makes it tough for other groups to like see a lot of deals and stay, stay top of mind. So I like it because I can be good at it and do it, but I can understand why people might struggle if they don't understand that. Yeah. And I think, I think that's the, the lesson learned. The message is figure out the people that are going to be critical to, to grow in your business and stay top of mind with those folks, right? Because mm-hmm. I think what you said was a great point that, I mean, nobody nobody cares or knows as much about what you're doing as you do. Everybody else has all their own stuff going on, family, work, everything else. So just stay top of mind, even if it's a text, email, whatever you got to do to keep your, keep your name up there. Because yeah, I think that's a great tip. So Chris, as you're, uh, you're thinking about, you know, the business is off to a roaring start. It sounds like you've done a handful of deals. You said your, your goal is to grow to 500 million over the next 10 years. What does that scaling look like to you? How do you, how do you think about how do you scale the business from where you are now to there? So part of what I did as I was debating about going off of my own was actually build out like a 10 year vision by year of like how much we're going to acquire, what our revenue is going to look like, when we buy that for the duration of the hold and, you know, when we eventually exit it and then like looking at, you know, kind of coming up with a, a target that is feasible and doable. So like I have yearly metrics of like assets we're trying to acquire and then trying to, you know, scale up to that. So, you know, our, the number on paper that I have is actually acquiring $640 million worth of property over 10 years, exiting roughly a hundred million dollars worth of it. And then, you know, having 540 under management, which gives me some margin forever, right? It's like nine or 8% or something like that. Um, But every year it is like anywhere from a 30 to a 65% year over year increase in the number of assets we're acquiring. So like year one was 5 million, year two, which we're in right now is 8 million, year three, I think is 13 million. I don't remember after that, to be perfectly honest, but I have the spreadsheet I can refer back to. Uh, And then I've broken down, you know, roughly what I think our price per door might be, how many units that would be roughly how much revenue that, you know, those properties bought in the first year are going to generate over a five-year period. Um, So that way I can calculate property management fees, you know, loosely asset management fees, acquisition fees um, by taking a baseline, you know, return, I've, I think I did like, I want to say like an 18% annualized with our promote structure. Okay. What would that net us over a five-year period? Um, and then, you know, one of my concerns, because I saw it happen at Toro is investors want to see us have skin in the game when we're bringing a deal to them. And they don't want to see you just roll an acquisition fee into the deal, or at least you know, a lot of the ones I talk to. Um, so when we've kind of breaking it down, that's roughly your 10% of equity comes from the general partners. Um, I do not have, when, you know, when you break down 500 million owned, 
if you did loosely, you know, 200 million in equity, 150 million in equity, and then 10% of that is 15 or 20 million in general partnership equity, I sure shit do not have that right now. Um, maybe I'll have it in 10 years, um, but most likely not. So for me, it was also looking at, okay, how much GP equity is going to be required if we are refinancing deals every two to three years and getting back a rough percentage, how much of that can I roll forward? If we sell a deal in year five, how much is the company getting that I can then roll into GP equity for future deals and, mm-hmm. and looking at that thing. So I have, you know, like a, a cumulative total of GP, you know, every year, how much GP equity we have outstanding and just looking at all those different things, because whether you have, you know, 50 grand, 500 grand, 5 million, 50 million, you are capped at how much you can buy, whether you're the sole owner, the GP or whatever, right? Eventually you're going to hit your bandwidth of how much you can buy. And if you want to scale quickly and hit that, eventually you're going to run out of capital to deploy either as the, you know, the sole owner, a 50, 50 split or 10%, you know, owner, whatever it may be. Um, you know, so understanding what that limit is and then building up to it, that was something I wanted to pay attention to when coming up with our 10 year mark. Cause the last thing I want to do is put, you know, $2 billion of assets. And then I need a hundred million worth of GP equity. And it's like, okay, I don't know how to do that. Um, so I didn't, I didn't want to make it too unrealistic. I wanted something within the ballpark of, you know, achievable. Yeah. No, I, I love the specificity you've gone into and, and how you created that vision. I think, yeah, that's one extremely important part about achieving your goals, right? Is having a specific vision on how you're going to do that. So you've outlined that there, you've, you've put hard numbers to it. So you've got a path and you also have those, those trigger points in place to know, am I on path or am I not? And if I'm not, you know, you have the opportunity to, to pivot and adjust. Mm-hmm. And so love that. I think that's a great model to follow uh, for people that are trying to build out their dream and, and build out their goals and scale up. So, you know, appreciate you sharing that with us. Yeah. And I think too, it's, it's not like a hard and fast thing. Like you can always change, like I'm only accountable to myself. So if I want to change what I'm doing, I can, but if I don't know where I'm trying to go, it's tough to actually know what I should be doing on a daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly, yearly basis to hit those. So it's more of like a loose guideline to do what I think I want to do and stuff has already changed. So it's fine, but it's just important to have. Yeah. If you don't know where you're, where you're going, anywhere works, right? So you got to have that clear path. Awesome. Well, Chris, appreciate you sharing all that with us, man. Uh, Before we let you go, I want to take you through our keys to success round. There's four questions I'm going to ask you. First one is put yourself in your investor's shoes. If you were going to invest your money with somebody and you can only ask them one question, what would that one question be? Uh, I would ask them what they think is the most important element in their business. Because I think that'll tell you what they prioritize. And when they have a million things to do in that week, what things they're going to pick out and, you know, make a priority. Yeah. How would you want them to answer? I think it's tough. I think it's a personal thing, right? Because I think you can make an argument for a lot of things, right? I think some people will be like, hey, I want communication to be the most important thing, right? Good, bad, or indifferent. I want to know what's going on. Some people may say, I want to know that you're busting your ass to make sure the property is performing at its peak. Because even if you don't tell me what's going on, you know, I know the work's getting done and you're doing your best job. Um, Some people may say, 
you know, I want to make sure the debt is getting paid. Like, I think there's a lot of different things. And I think it's just a personal thing. Cause I know some people that like, Hey, communication, I want to know everything. And then some people are like, I don't really care if you update me, here's the money and, you know, go do what you got to do. So I think there's a couple different answers in there that could be good. Just depends on what that person values and, you know, who they're giving their money to. Gotcha. Gotcha. So what are you most proud of in your career? Um, I think there's a lot of things, but I would say one of the whole reasons I'm even doing this is I've had a lot of friends, family, people I've known that really didn't enjoy their job for one reason or another. And it's one of the reasons I stayed at Toro as long as I did, because I had thought about leaving for other jobs that, you know, were in the city and my commute wouldn't be over an hour each way, or just thought about, you know, maybe getting a different role or whatever. Uh, but ultimately when I looked at my life and the stuff I had around my job, I never left. Cause I was like the, the important stuff, the big stuff to me was taken care of. And I had a lot of flexibility, autonomy, ownership of my role. Um, you know, there's no limits on like taking days off. And if I, you know, like one morning when I lived in Brooklyn, it snowed so bad. My car was just like completely covered and it iced in. And I was like, this is going to take me five hours to chip away. I was like, Hey guys, I'm working from home today. And they're like, okay, no problem. That stuff was super important to me and was really great. Uh, so providing a similar environment for other people is one of my goals. And I just had kind of our one-year check-in with um, our on-site manager. And um, she just gave me a really ton of great feedback that kind of nailed a lot of the things that I was trying to do. Um, and that made me really happy and proud. That's awesome. That's awesome. You're, you're uh, taking those things you liked and creating a culture around your own business. That's mm -hmm. very cool. What is a book that everybody should read? Hmm. I think, I don't know about everybody, um, but I really enjoyed the book, two books, uh, Clockwork was really, really good about like just building to a business that you can step away from and isn't necessarily reliant upon you to run. So that's a little bit more specific to people uh, trying to build a business. Um, but also a book called Who Not How um, was really impactful too, of just like, stop trying to do everything yourself and find the people that already know how to do it and things will be easier. And I think that's applicable to anybody's life at any level, you know, there, whether it's, you know, chores or whether it's work or whether it's, you know, running a business or, you know, dealing with whatever, there's somebody out there that has gone through what you're trying to go through and knows how to get through it. You just got to find that person. Yeah, absolutely. I haven't read clockwork, but I've read who not how, and that had a huge impact on me and yeah. how we run our business and brought on several assistants because of that book. And it's, it's been a game changer for sure. Yeah. So lastly, Chris, what is your number one key to success? Um, I think probably just not judging myself too hard. Um, like today is a really good example. I have not done that much today. I had a eye doctor's appointment I went to. I've done a couple phone calls and it's like, you know, any investors probably listening to this, they may not want to hear that. Like, you know, anybody that's in our deals or many partners or whatever, like 
I'm going through refi now. I'm supposed to be working together on getting my personal financial statement updated, my SREO updated, getting this information together. Um, but it's like, okay, like, you know, there's some days you got to do some stuff and you know, you got to do other things. And I have time later tonight and you know, I'm taking off tomorrow and Monday for Easter uh, to go on a trip with family. But it's like, I know in five years from now, I'm never going to look on this day and be like, ah, I should have worked that much harder. You know, like there's days where I get in and I crush it for 10, 11 hours and that's great. And then there's days where, you know, I just don't get as much done for one reason or another. And it could be, you know, doctor's appointment. It could be just one of those days. Uh, and I think that really serves me really well because it doesn't really, I'm not, I'm not sitting here with a bundle of stress. Like you know, I'm able to still get things done and in the grand scheme of things, like I said, in five years, it's not really going to matter. Yeah. I think that's a good lesson. I mean, that's part of the beauty of being an entrepreneur, right. And working for yourself is being able to control your own schedule. And I think, you know, you're going to have those ebbs and flows, like, like you said, and not getting, not getting down on yourself, I think is huge. So I think that is, uh, you know, that, that's a great key to success because it's easy. I mean, we are our own worst critics, right. And so that's, uh, yeah. that, that's awesome. I love the perspective of, you know, in five years, what's going to matter? Is it going to be that you're going to remember that great trip with your family? Or would it be that you, you didn't go on that trip and like you, you crushed it on good Friday, you know, and it yeah. worked 10 hours, like what, what's going to matter. Right. And I think, yeah. I think that's a good perspective. It's also too, right. Like it's a long-term game. You know, I saw there's like a, a, a meme going around. It was like, you know, if you look at your day to day or like minute by minute, it's like, or you, you know, if you look at kind of like a stock chart, right. It goes up, it goes down, it goes up, it goes down. But like when you zoom out, it looks just like a line going up on an angle. And I think about that. It's like, I know I'm doing good stuff. I know stuff is getting accomplished. And like, yeah, some days I'm just having a bad day for whatever reason. Maybe I didn't sleep right. Maybe my dogs are being crazy. Maybe, you know, I got a fight with my fiance or something um, or just whatever, just not feeling it. And I'm just going to have a, a down day. But then the next day I may wake up on top of the world and crush it and, you know, blow past where I was. And, but, you know, over time, you know, everything kind of evens out. And, you know, again, I'm just not judging myself and knowing I'm doing the right things I need to do. And, you know, it's going to all work itself out. Yeah, that's right. As long as you're doing the right things, it'll all work itself out. Yep. Well, Chris, thanks so much for, for coming on today and sharing your knowledge with us and sharing your story. I think it's inspirational coming, mm -hmm. you know, out of a big group, starting your own and, and really just, just starting to blast off with that. So excited to see the rest of your success, my friend. And, Again, thanks for coming on. If people want to learn, you know, more about you and what you're doing, how can they get a hold of you? Yeah, for sure. Uh, anybody can email me for any reason. If you're interested in investing, if you're interested in Jacksonville, you want a second pair of eyes on something, you just want to connect, uh, email me, chris at jag-communities.com. Uh, that's also our website for our management side, jag-communities.com. Should be launched in like the next week, hopefully. So if it's after you know, April, whatever, you should be yeah, good. It'll be live uh, by then. We'll make sure we yeah, yeah. link it down. In the our, minutes. our invest, yeah, our investor facing website is uh jagcapitalpartners.com. Uh, so check out those two websites. If you want to connect or follow me on social media, I mean, just search Chris Grenzig on any of them, but the two main ones I'm on are Instagram at chris.grenzig or LinkedIn, which I think is just chris-grenzig. Very cool. All right, Chris. Well, thanks again for coming on and We'll make sure all that info is listed below and you have a great rest of the day, my friend. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening to another great episode of Ritter on Real Estate. 
Hit the subscribe button to make sure you don't miss out on the content that will make you a better investor. Also, visit KentRitter.com for articles, videos, and tools curated just for passive investors. Until next time, this is Kent Ritter with Ritter on Real Estate. Now go out and invest like a pro.